Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Doxedo Hatfield, if you can please open up your Bible with me. Just want to say once again, it's so great to be online again for our fourth week of live streaming. And I'll just say it because I know you're thinking it. So it's church, friends. We can be honest. You are, with the weather this morning, very happy that we don't have in-person services. I'll just say it so that you don't have to say it because it is bloody cold this week. So let's see what our president says tonight. Maybe he has some good news for us to gather together as the people of God. But for now, we are finishing up our series today called Not Do But Done. And for the last five weeks, we have tried our best from every single angle possible to speak about the foundational teaching of Christianity, which says that the whole of history is pivoting around. All of history is turning around the most powerful words ever spoken by a human being. And what is that? John 19, Jesus, as he bows out and he gives up his spirit, he says, it is finished. And from that historical event 2,000 years ago, everything was different for all people going forward. And we've been trying to say over and over again that the core message of Christianity is not that you have to do and do and do all these legalistic rules or you are kept kind of in check with a whole bunch of regulations. Don't and don't and don't. No, the, the core message of Christianity is that in Jesus, it is done. And it's from that perspective that we now move. And we've been saying over and over again that a restored relationship with Jesus is not something we achieve, but it's something that we receive in faith through Jesus. And it's not that Jesus on the cross says, guys, you know, you're, I'm so tired. I've given my best. Now, please, can you just complete through all of your works and your religiosity and your, your moral teachings? Can you complete my work? No, it's done. That's where the conversation starts. And we've been saying that we are not, as Christians, if you're a Christian today, you are not simply a forgiven sinner but you have been transformed by the historical work of Christ into the righteousness of Jesus, into a saint, into the sons and daughters of the King. We've been saying that in Jesus, we don't live for closeness with God. In Jesus, we live from closeness with God. It is not do but done. But that's why today we want to finish on a very practical note, because I know that if you are joining us and you're a guest, maybe you are still looking into what Christianity means and what its focus is. But if you're a Christian today, I want to show us that I know there are certain obstacles still. Because in this whole sermon series, we've been saying, look at the finished historical work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you see it? Have you received it? Have you bowed before it? Have you allowed it to transform you from the inside out? And if you're a Christian, you say yes to that in faith. But I know there is a, there's a further challenge that we often experience, and that is, yes, I see the finished work of Christ. I see the historical work of Christ, but often I don't see it in the church. Often I don't see it in my own life. I don't see the effect of the finished work of Jesus in the church or in my life. And so the question arises, what now? It is finished 
But what now? Because what happens when the effect of the finished work is not seen in the church? About a year ago this week, one of probably the most influential content creators on YouTube, two guys, Rhett and Link, they shared very publicly their deconstruction story of their Christian faith. How they have decided to step away from officially calling themselves Christians for various reasons. And this week, a year later, they shared almost a follow-up, the year later story. And there's a whole bunch going on there. But one thing that I, that I was so struck by is the one guy said, listen, my issue is, and what I think often happens when some young people do leave the church, it's not that they don't find Jesus compelling. He says, I find Jesus utterly compelling. These young people find Jesus compelling, but they just don't find him in the church. Or what about the flip side, when it's not us, that we don't see the effect of Christ, but what about my own life? What if I say, yes, I see Christ, but you know what? Often my mind, my emotions, and my thoughts, they wreak havoc on me. There's condemnation. There's accusation. Often I see areas of my life that they are just not changing. It's been years, and I don't see that transforming power of Christ or, you know what, if I'm just honest, there are these, these specific areas of sin that just entangle me. When we don't see the effect of the finished work, yes, not do, but done. Yes, it's finished, but what now? And so we want to look just at those three key stumbling blocks today, very practically. I'm going to a couple of times just say, so what do we do now? I'm going to give you something very practical that we do from the foundation of the finished work. And the first we're going to look at is my statement that I make is this, my thoughts and my emotions condemn me. What now? Secondly is I'm not seeing change in specific areas of my life. So what now? Or thirdly, there is certain sin in my life that just keeps entangling me. What now? So let's look at that first one. My thoughts and my emotions. Yes, I see Jesus. I know in the theological part of who I am, I know it's true. I know he is who he said he is. I know what he did was historical. It's final. It's a full and a finished work, but you know what? Very often, what my mind says to me, very often my emotional reaction to what's happening in my life and around me, it doesn't line up. And those thoughts, they are condemning, they are accusing. And so I experience maybe failure around me, or I, I commit some kind of sin, egregious, and I feel so ashamed, or life just, it's just brutal. And it leads to this kind of internal condemnation and accusation that I'm not enough. I'm a failure. That God is not who he says he is. Maybe it's not true. Maybe that's what you experience at times. Let me be honest with what I experience. I'll give you the tip of the iceberg. You know, for me, I have struggled with depression all throughout my life. Those are thoughts that I have to wrestle with about my worth and about who I am. You know, I've told my story openly many times about the fact that pornography almost ruined just who I am and my identity. But I will tell you in those early years of having to rid that from my life as a Christian, it was brutal in my mind. My self-worth and what God says about me and having to hold on to that. Or when I feel that I'm being unkind to my kids or I'm not being loving and patient and I'm working in a soft and a gentle way with my wife, I, I, I experience those thoughts and emotions of condemnation. When I think of my son, Benjamin, our middle child who, who has genetic hearing loss, for the rest of his life, he won't be able to hear normally. 
that bugs me. I have these emotions of God. That's true. But what about this? When life just feels unfair, maybe that's not you this morning, but that's where I often find myself, those accusations internally. And the Bible agrees with this. Because it says those accusations, it can come from other people. Mark 15 says that the chief priests accused Jesus, those voices. Or it can come from our own conscience. Romans 2 says that the thoughts in my mind can either accuse or excuse me, or it can come from the enemy. That's what the enemy does. Revelation 12 says, the accuser of our brothers and sisters. That's the title it gives Satan, it says, who accuses them before God day and night. Or 2 Corinthians 2 that says, we shouldn't be taken advantage of by Satan. Why? Because we are not ignorant of his what? Schemes. He's scheming to lie to you, to amplify the emotions of this season in South Africa. So that you would doubt, so that you would feel shame, so that you would feel condemned on the inside. And what do those emotions and those thoughts do? It makes us feel shameful and inadequate. Isn't it true? You hear those statements in your mind. You will never change. You are suffering because of your sin and you know it. It's a punishment from God. Your past is unforgivable. In fact, it's your identity. It's who you are. How dare you speak to other people about Jesus? Look at your own life. Or maybe you are still a sinner. God would never accept someone as unfaithful as you. We all experience these moments where emotions and thoughts do not line up with the truth. But hear me now. And, and you're thinking, what amazing new revelation will I bring to you today? It's not new, friends. The answer is not finding some new thing in the Bible. It's going back to the oldest of things and taking it seriously. Romans 12, you can't get better than this. Paul says, do not be conformed, the outward to this age. How? By being transformed by the renewing of your mind. <laughs> That's the answer, friends. When reality is not lining up with my thoughts and my emotions, the answer is not found out there. It's found in here. This needs to align. And Paul repeats himself in Ephesians 4 when he says in verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. He says, then we start in verse 24, putting on the new self. It begins in the spirit of my mind. What is the thought patterns, the conversation? What's the script as Taiki spoke of the other day? What is it that's actually speaking to me, controlling me emotionally? You know, not too long ago, Borsov told me that he had showed The Matrix, let's be honest, at least top three, probably one of the best films of all time. Let's just be honest now, guys, no bias here at all. And he said that his kids found the movie boring. Guys, come on. That's like, that's church discipline for the Chorobler kids, I'm just saying. But it's still like one of my favorite movies of all time. But in this movie, at one stage, Morpheus says to Neo... He says to him, you know what, this whole idea of the matrix can be seen in the, in the following way. What if you were in a, in a dream state, but you could not differentiate anymore between what the dream world is and what the real world is? What would that do? You would live basically in submission. You would live imprisoned in that world because it would be so real to you. It is 
your reality. That's what Paul is saying. If my mind is still the prison that I live in of an old life of condemning and accusing emotions, that becomes my reality. So many good books have been written about this for so many years now, but I think just recently, Craig Rochelle of Life Church, I think he did a brilliant job just to make it simple once again. And he says this in his book, Winning the War on Your Mind. He says, our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Isn't that true? So he says, what we think shapes who we are. And if you think that you are trapped, if you believe there's a lock on the door, you've bought into the lie. And he says, and that's all it is. It's a lie that's holding you back. Yet, and here's the hope that the Bible repeats so often. It says, if you identify that lie, Grishel says, then you can remove it. He says, you can replace that lie with truth and be free. So he says, your liberation is a simple two-step process. Remove the lie and replace it with truth. Isn't that beautiful? If you ask me, what now? My thoughts, my emotions condemn me. The answer is found once again in the truth of the gospel. Identify the lie, remove the lie, and replace it with the truth of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus do? Matthew 4, he's just been baptized, just having the Father spoke, you know, speaking over him, the truth of who he is. And then he goes into the desert and the enemy comes and repeatedly says to him, if you are, if the Father said, if that's true, and what does Jesus do? He says, it is written. It is written. And he quotes verbatim scripture. It's not some memory verse or like this is my affirmation in the morning. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth that he replaces with that lie. It's almost like seeing in, in real played out dramatized you know, form. We see Jesus identifying the lie, removing it and replacing it with the truth. It's so funny, my wife, I didn't even realize she was going to say that. She speaks about that gorge swing that we did together. You know, it was so funny. We were at a wedding and afterwards we said, we're going to go and do this thing, massive, like 60 meter drop and you swing together. But these guys, you know, as they're strapping us up and they, you know, they put you together in this harness, he's got this little shtick that he does, this guy, always. And he tells you, you know, it's my first week here and, and I'm not too sure about all these knots exactly. And, you know, that harness hasn't really been tested for two people and, you know, I hope the cable's not too long. You know, sometimes they mess up the meterage. And so, I mean, you're standing there, and initially it's funny. It's like, yeah, 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 whatever. But, you know, I could see this guy eventually get to the place where he could see. He was spooking us. It's like, okay, dude, seriously, it's like death on the other side of this ramp. Don't lie. And eventually he just switches over. That voice that created so much uncertainty in us, suddenly he just turns around. And he says, guys, we've done this a million times. We've got this. You've got this. Let's go. And immediately, it's as if that voice of truth, it stirs up courage in us and we go. The question is, what is the voice that is influencing your emotions and your thoughts with regard to the good news of Jesus? Because Jesus will remain who he is forever and his work will never be challenged. But if I'm imprisoned in my mind and in my emotions by thoughts that go contrary to that, if it's a voice of untruth, of lie, of distortion, of condemnation, of accusation, I will never live in that fullness. 
I have to hear the voice of truth when I identify. So you need to go and sit. If you ask me, what do you need to do? You go and you take your coffee and tea, if you're that kind of person, and you go and sit in the presence of God with a piece of paper, and you say, Holy Spirit, minister to me now. Come and show me the lie. Come and show me the fake. Come and show me the mirage. Come and show me what is not of you, and you write it down. And you get into Scripture, and you say, God, equip me for this journey together, because you have to hear God saying to you from the scripture, I know everything about you, and yet I choose in Jesus to love you still. You have to hear him saying, I have removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. It will never be spoken of in my presence again. You have to hear that I've promised, God says in Jesus, to never leave you nor forsake you. It doesn't matter what happens in your life, because Jesus stood in your place. You have to hear him saying, I've called you my beloved in whom I am well pleased. You know, we do homemade pizza and movie nights on Fridays. And this past Friday, we watched the new Pixar movie called Luca. And it's so cute. It's this little, you know, plays off in this little Italian town. Everyone's very Italian. Not sure if in 2021 that stereotyping was just funny, but I enjoyed it in any way. But at one stage, not spoiling the movie, these two young boys, the main characters, the one is very timid and unsure. The other one's adventurous and boisterous. And so he wants to go down this massive ramp with his bike. And he says, get on with me. And the timid one says, no, you know, what if we die and this happens? And, and he gets off his bike, the adventurous one. He says to him, listen you to me now. That voice in your head telling you that you can't do it, that you're going to fail, that you're going to get hurt. Let's give that voice a name. We'll call it Bruno. He says, let's just call it Bruno. Bruno is speaking to you. And you know what I want you to do? I want you to tell that voice, silencio Bruno, silence Bruno. I am telling you to shut up, basically, in English. That's the technical translation of the word there. He's saying, silencio Bruno. And he says, I want you to shout it. And the guy's like, yeah, I know, silencio Bruno. He's like, I want you to shout it. Okay, silencio Bruno. I want you to shout it. Silencio Bruno. Friends, that's good theology. Because it's saying, if the truth is not aligned, then speak to that truth and say, silencio. <laughs> because the truth of God has to replace it. That is what we do. But maybe secondly, he's saying, listen, for me, it's the fact that I'm not seeing change. In specific areas of my life, it's been years and it just remains the same. So yes, it's finished. But what now? And I love this. Paul says, just one thing, he says in Ephesians, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's not saying live in a way to earn the love of God. He's saying because of the love of God, because of the grace of God, respond in a way that speaks of the worth of who Jesus is. Ephesians 4, Colossians 1, 1 Thessalonians 1, he, every single time he comes back to this phrase, walk, act, speak, live, walk in a way that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And worthy, it's like, who uses that word? You don't see your girlfriend, oh, thou art worthy. Um, so what does it mean? Paul is saying it's that moment where you ascribe so much worth to something that the very way you purpose your life around it changes. I think of the other day, I, I go out from the venue here at Hatfield and I see just a bunch of papers on the ground, just rubbish. 
I pick it up and I throw it away. No emotion, friends. I did not lose sleep about the rubbish because that's what it is. But I think of the day that I finally went at the age of 20 and I bought myself a ring to give to my future wife. Friends, I was like Gollum in that moment. It was glorious. The ring. I was, I was entranced by it. So beautiful. Why? Because it was worthy. It was so worthy, in fact, that I think I ate bread for the next couple of weeks. It was worthy. So my purpose, my posture toward it changed. And Paul says that's what it looks like. If the gospel is true, then purpose your life. Don't just hang around. Yes, you are free. Yes, you have been released. Yes, you are a new creation. What now? Purpose your life. Live on purpose. Rick Warren it if you have to. Purpose-driven life. The gospel is not supposed to make us meek. It's supposed to make us energetic for God. Think about that. You know, I, I was in a school that, that was rich in tradition. It was, it was purposed for all of us to follow those traditions. So when we went on school tours to play other schools, you would have to wear your blazer and your white shirt, even in the blazing sun. You would get these beautifully printed out thank you cards to give to your hosts. You would have to, inevitably, if you beat them on the way home in the car, you would have to thank the guy that you played against and say, you did well. Thank you for the game. It was awkward very often. But it was a way of saying, because we have worth in our tradition, we are going to act in a certain way. And Paul says that same posture, not of kind of lackadaisical, just lying around. Okay, well, I guess I'm a Christian now and I'm just waiting for heaven. He says, no, new creation has begun. So get up and with the power of the Spirit, energized purpose. If there's an area in your life that doesn't align with who Jesus is, we can do something about it. And this is what I love. So here's my key thought here. Dallas Willard, the Christian philosopher, he says this. Grace, the unmerited favor of God, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We cannot earn the love and grace of God. But the grace of God, oh yes, it brings effort from us. Not for love, but because of love. Listen to how Paul puts it. 1 Timothy 6, 11. For that whole chapter, he's speaking about the beauty of Jesus. But listen how with a straight face, he tells his protege Timothy, but you, man of God, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you have been called. Do you see that Paul has no issue saying on the other side of grace, grace as the eternal foundation, you not earning, we are putting in blood, sweat, and tears through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can fight, you can pursue, you can take hold. There's nothing that goes against the grace of God in that. So if you ask me, what do I do practically? Here's what you do. I want to challenge us. I want to challenge us to be as intentional with our discipleship, our growth in Jesus, as we are with planning our holidays. I want us to be as intentional as we are with tracking our diets with our discipleship. Some of you are saying, I, you know, that's like, then let me not do that. I don't track my diet. But some of you guys religiously do that. Why not take your faith as seriously? How about planning out your career? In your career, you are goal-oriented. It's the steps. It's the ladder. It's the purpose. Why not have your faith in the same way? 
Some of you track the stats of your favorite team that I can ask you now and you will give me just pages and pages of info. Why not take the grace of God as seriously? Or the reviews that you read as you hunt down that newest product. If some of us took our faith, our discipleship path of Jesus as seriously, not for grace, but from grace, we're not earning. It's the effort that comes from love. It's the effort that comes from grace. You know, there's a very simple way to look at discipleship, our growth in Jesus. And it's those three things. If I want to grow in my own heart, my own life, or I want to disciple those around me, three things that I need is I have to have an understanding of the basic concept. I have to have an evaluation of where I am. Where am I on the journey? Or where is this person? And thirdly, I need to be able to establish environments where growth can happen. So think about if you're learning to play guitar. What you want in a good teacher is someone who has knowledge of the field. I know my stuff when it comes to the guitar, when it comes to music and theory. And what is this person, what they need to do is look at you, play me something. And then they evaluate and they say, okay, I can see you've got the C chord down, but your bar chords are poor. Your timing is not great. So what then? Step number three, let's create an environment. Let's establish a space where you can grow. That's how we disciple. I look at my life or I look at my friend's life or my wife or my kids and I say, God, help me to understand your purpose and your gospel. Help me to evaluate where am I? Where is this person in their growth? And thirdly, what environments, patterns, habits, rhythms can I establish to grow in this area of my faith? Because the Bible says there are these five general, almost life stages. Either you are dead to God. That means there's no faith. Or you're an infant, the Bible says. You are just born into faith. You need tons of help in that area of your life. Or you're a child. You are learning to walk confidently in your faith. Or you're a young adult. There's a conquering that's happening in your faith in that area of your life. Or the Bible says you are a parent. You are reproducing your faith in other people. And that can be the full picture of just saying, maybe in this area of my life, I still feel very childlike. But in this area of my faith, I'm a parent. I can reproduce in others. I need to sit and be as intentional as with planning a holiday or a diet or or buying some new thing for my house. I need to sit and say, God, God, give me a vision for my discipleship. Give me a vision and a plan and a purpose. I want to walk worthy. What are the areas of my life that I want to see changing? Maybe I can give you examples. Maybe it's generosity. You are stingy and you've been stingy for many years. There's a grip that money still has on you. God, I want to be generous. Maybe it's the holiness of my sexuality, how I express it. Maybe it's being kind and patient in my work environment. Maybe it's just having a controlled tongue. Maybe it's knowledge of the Bible. God, I want to know your truth. Maybe it's boldness in being able to share my faith with those around me or having a God-honoring work ethic. Maybe it's my commitment, deep-seated commitment to my marriage or to my parenting. Maybe it's that I realize I'm still, years later, leaning on alcohol or some kind of substance or media or series to soothe some of the things that are happening in my heart. Maybe it's, God, I want to be able to teach my kids about faith and lead them well. What is the area that you look at and you say, God, here I want to grow. In 10 years from now, I don't want to be the same person because you love me so much. You're not going to leave me who I am. I want to see 
growth. And I'll just leave this thought with you. You know, James Clear, we spoke about it at the end of last year. He's the guy from Atomic Habits, the book. He's one of the experts in habits forming in the world. And he says this. He says, what you repeatedly do ultimately forms the person that you are. You In your life today, you are essentially the sum of your habits. What I do day in, day out, week in, week out, season in, season out, it will form who I am. So God, what in that area that I don't see the grace of Jesus, I don't see the finished work of Jesus, I don't see the effect of Christ in that area. God, come and illuminate it to me. Show me where I can grow and what people, the word of God, the spirit of God and the people of God, God, give me a purposeful plan for my growth. In the next quarter of my life, in the next six months of my life, in the next year of my life, in the next five years of my life, God, I want to learn how to pray. God, I want to be confident in speaking about Jesus with my colleagues. God, I want to become someone who can genuinely cry with my kids about the beauty of the gospel. What is our plan for growth? We are not acting for faith and love. We are acting from it. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So what do we do? Let's take the long view and let's create a purposeful path and a plan for growth. But maybe finally you say, well, the thing that's really getting me, Joe, I know who Jesus is, but there is certain sin that just keeps entangling me. So yes, it's finished, but what now? And I want to make just a very practical encouragement to all of us. The picture that I want you to have in your mind today is that we need to stop cleaning out the spider webs. And in the power of the Spirit, we need to start killing the spiders themselves. You know, when uh, the, probably the first place we ever moved into, the garage, a uh, very tiny little garage, it had every now and then uh, like an old cobweb, an old spider web in the corner somewhere. You can see that spider has not been there for months. He's gone down to Durban enjoying the sun many, many months ago. He's evacuated. So then every now and then I would just kind of clean out those spider webs. But later, our kids, they would, when they were very young, they would have these big plastic playthings outside. You would slide on them and swing on them. And every now and then, we would go and inspect those things, turn them around. And you know what we would find there? We would find this thing in Afrikaans that we called the knopi spinnakop. You know those guys, the widow spider. That thing has a wicked neurotoxin. And you know what I would do as a good father? When I see that widow spider there sitting where my child is going to play in five minutes, I say, guys, good luck, you know. Just try your best. Sidestep it if possible. Don't touch it too much. Don't swallow it. No, I don't do that. I killed that spider. Sorry, spider lovers. I have done it. Why? Because, yes, a spider web is something you sidestep. You kind of step away from it. You ignore it. Maybe you clean it out. But a spider, you kill. And listen to what the Bible says. Romans 8 verse 13. If you live according to the flesh... You are going to die. In other words, there is destruction in your path. It's not spiritual death. It's losing inheritance. It's losing quality relationship with God. But if by the Spirit, (laughs) it says, you put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit, not for the Spirit, I have the Spirit forever without limit because of Jesus. But now with the fuel, the power of the Spirit, I put to death what is not of 
Jesus. Because of Jesus, I will do anything. I will fight tooth and claw to remove the spiders, not just the spider webs. Because I've seen this, guys. We have sometimes these moments in the church, sometimes in a community group, very often at men's events. If you've been part of the church for a while, men's events often turn into these spider web cleaning moments where it's shouting and it's crying and it's big manly hugs and I will do better. And we just quickly brush away all the spider webs, but the spiders remain. God says, that's not what I've called you to. I call you to freedom. So a couple of questions you can ask, just practically, is what is the root lie that you believe regarding that sin that you are entangled in? When are you most vulnerable and weak to that sin that feels like it conquers you all the time? What radical measures in your life would bring wholeness and healing? What scriptures and truths, if memorized, would speak truth over the lies and the brokenness in your heart? What support structures or friendships or leadership connections in the church do I need to establish to ensure victory in this area of sin? What patterns of life, what you do day in and out, or what relationships that I'm still tolerating, or maybe the open doors in my life are causing destruction? What's going to be the end game of this destructive path that I'm following? And maybe finally, what is the incredible legacy that God wants me to leave with the one and only life I have to live? We don't want to manage spider webs. We want to kill the spiders through the spirit of God. So what do I do when I'm sin? I'm reminded of Titus 2 that says, yes, the grace of God has appeared in Jesus. And yes, it brings salvation, verse 11 says. But verse 12 says, it trains us, the grace of Jesus. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. True grace doesn't just free, it trains us to kill the spiders. So when I sin, what do I do? I proclaim the truth of Jesus over my life. I am a son of God in Jesus. Secondly, I ask for the forgiveness of God. And I'll speak about that in a second. And thirdly, I confess to a friend, to a Christian, to a leader. And that forgiveness is not so that you would have a return status before God. I've fallen out of favor. I'm the worm. I'm terrible. God, please forgive me. Now I'm back in, in, in good graces. No. Think about a marriage. Let's look from the perspective of, a, of the wife. The day that she says yes at that wedding, her surname changes. She moves into a new house. Her patterns of life are now joined to someone else. If she wrongs her husband in some way, and there's relational strain, you know, her surname doesn't magically change back and she's kicked out of the house by some magic broom or something like that. No, her status remains, but the quality of the relationship is affected. And so forgiveness has nothing to do with status. When Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, God, bring forgiveness, it's not that our status will change. It's that quality of relationship. I, I proclaim the truth of Jesus when I've wronged. I ask the Lord for forgiveness, and I confess to a good Christian friend. Friends, I just want to end off by saying, you know, many years ago, Shane and I went to Stellenbosch, a bit of holiday, and her brother who was studying there, he left his car for us, and as we get going, we realize there's not a ton of petrol in this thing, but clever as we are, as young 20-something-year-olds, we, we're like, we'll figure it out. We'll just gauge it. 
And so what happens? You see Joe and Shane next to the road somewhere in Stellenbosch, looking like idiots, no petrol, stranded, standing there. Now, when I try to flag people down to help us, you know what I ask them when they roll down their windows? Listen, do you maybe have another car for me that I can borrow? Can I maybe have your car? That'd be great. (laughs) No, I didn't do that. What did I ask for? I need petrol. (laughs) The car's fine. The petrol is what I need. Friends, what the gospel says to us with the Trinity is that Jesus is not just the author, but he's the perfecter of your faith. Hebrews 12. That the Holy Spirit has been given without limit to you, John 3. And that the Father has blessed you with every spiritual blessing you could ever need, Ephesians 1. You have been given petrol worthy of the kingdom. And it's a finished work and it's done. So what do we do? We drive. What do we do now? If that's true, we drive. We transform our thinking. We bring with purposeful living every area of life into alignment with Jesus. And we kill every single spider. Not for love, because of love. It's not do but done. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray for every partner of Hatfield that they would experience the fuel, God, of purpose, the spirit coursing through their spiritual veins to take them, God, from victory to victory. May we not just know the gospel, but may we live it, God, in victory. And every person who feels deeply condemned, may they find grace and forgiveness and peace in Jesus alone. And everyone said on the couch, amen. Over to Taiki and Jillian.